Hello, and welcome to the Middle East Politics and Policy Podcast. My name is Nicholas Norberg, and this week I sat down with writers Fritjof Falk and Hamad El Hadri to discuss some of the latest news in the Middle East. We focused this week on the proposal of a new mechanism to facilitate trade between the European Union and Iran as Iran looks to find ways of maintaining its economy under the pressure of American sanctions after President Donald Trump pulled out of the Iran deal. We also discussed the unexpected attendance of the Qatari emir at an, at an economic conference in Lebanon, as well as the founding of a new political party in Tunisia. This is the Middle East Politics and Policy Podcast. Fritjof, uh, so Iran is essentially still abiding by the terms of the JCPOA, the Iran deal as it's better known, but uh, the Trump administration is trying to uh, continue to impose very harsh sanctions uh, on Iran. Can you just give us a quick sense of why the Trump administration is pursuing that policy uh, and why European nations are trying to stay in the deal? Yeah, so it was one of the main promises on the foreign policy front uh, during Trump's uh, uh, presidential campaign that he would uh, pull out of the Iran deal, and which he then did uh, this year. Uh, President Trump claims that Iran is not abiding by the deal, which his own uh, intelligence chiefs have said that Iran is. Um, it is also because he claims that the deal does not go far enough in uh, responding to the larger Iranian behavior in the Middle East. Uh, which uh, the U.S. sees as destabilizing the region and being against uh, U.S. interests. And which specifically Trump believes, you know, that Iran's involvement in Iraq, for example, backing militias uh, and its involvement in uh, supporting uh, the Houthi in Yemen, uh, as well as Iran's support for Hezbollah in Lebanon. Trump kind of believes that this, this activity rises to the level of making Iran an urgent threat that needs to be addressed and that is irreversibly disrupting American policy goals in the Middle East. That is something that there's by no means consensus on in the U.S. foreign policy community, but that's kind of the attitude that Trump has and what he's making decisions on when it comes to Iranian policy. Trump's motivation is basically to try and limit Iran's capacity to carry out its own foreign policy in the Middle East. Yeah, and, and this is something that most European countries could agree with to an extent, but the European signatories to the uh, Iran deal, the JCPOA, have opted for uh, negotiations as the preferred method of uh, dealing with Iran when the U.S. has opted for more of a confrontational stance. Right, exactly. And, yeah. you know, part of this is because, you know, the effectiveness of the sanctions regime that the U.S. has had in place on Iran is somewhat debatable. I mean, there's plenty of, you know, policy voices who will argue that the, pre the pre-existing American sanctions regime was what brought Iran to the table under the Obama administration. But, you know, that's uh, something that is by no means settled. Yeah, and this deal is important in and of its own for the Europeans to show that they can uh, keep their word. And Iran has been basically the main uh, foreign policy issue for the EU since the EU started having a foreign policy uh, and taking their foreign policy more seriously at the start of the 2000s. And this foreign policy has been uh, linked to their negotiations with Iran and their foreign policy guidelines were updated right after the Iran deal was, was reached in 2015. And so uh, to the Europeans, this is also about not losing face. But it is a significant development because this has the potential of creating a 
a big rift in the, the relationship between the U.S. And, and Europe. Right. So as far as I understand it, there's uh, essentially the EU is trying to find a way to continue doing business with Iran without running afoul of uh, the U.S.'s reimposed sanctions regime on Iran. And uh, they've created a new mechanism, basically, that will that they think, at least in theory, will allow Iran to continue doing business with the European Union without you know, exposing the European Union and businesses in Europe to the risk of violating American sanctions on Iran. Uh, what exactly are they doing there? Yeah, so the problem for the Europeans is that these U.S. sanctions are extraterritorial. So because the uh, dollar and the U.S. has such a huge impact on the financial markets, uh, the U.S. can unilaterally sanction companies that do business in the U.S. if they also do business in Iran. And so this announcement about Europe's uh, setting up of INSTEX uh, is a major development because this is a transaction channel that's uh, aimed at, that aims at circumventing the U.S. sanctions on Iran. And this is something that the Europeans have been talking to China and Russia about since the... Uh, sorry, what is INSTEX? What does that stand for? Yeah, sorry. So the INSTEX stands for the Instrument in Support of Trade Exchange. And this is a so-called special purpose vehicle, which is designed to create its own mechanism for trade between uh, European companies and Iranian companies. This will only be for... Um, smaller companies and medium-sized companies, because if these are uh, major companies that also do business in the U.S., then they can be affected by the U.S. sanctions, even though they use this mechanism. But yes, th this is the next stage of a process that Europe's, uh, the European Union's uh, foreign policy chief, Federica Mogherini, uh, announced together with the Russians and the Chinese at the uh, UN General Assembly this uh, fall in New York. Uh, so for now, this is not the whole EU setting up INSTEX. Uh, it is only uh, France, Germany and the United Kingdom. Uh, but they have asked for broad support from all EU member states. But it's also important to point out that this is a toning down of their earlier plans to create a mechanism for trading Iranian oil and gas with European goods. Because uh, this mechanism will only allow for trade in food, medicine and medical devices. And of course, the Iranians were quick to point out that this is not um, enough to uh, sustain the Iranian economy and to see a huge upswing in trade. And this is true, but it, it isn't nothing either, because European um, trade uh, in only medicine with Iran was $900 million last year. And so the U.S. has, has yet to really say anything about this development. So, so this deal also does not necessarily give, adopting this mechanism would not necessarily give European companies the ability to operate within Iran with impunity. Yeah, for sure, because this only allows for food, medicine and medical devices. And so the main point here is the signal effect. It's not really about how much this is in trade. Uh, the French foreign minister, Le Drian, he called it a political act. He, that's the first thing he said after they announced it. And the Iranians call it a good first step. So the main signal from the Europeans to Iran is that Europe is committed to staying in the deal. And they are trying to symbol to Iran that it would be best if Iran also stays in the deal. The most remarkable part is that um, this is the three major economies of Europe breaking with the U.S. and directly defying uh, policies out of Washington. 
Uh, and it's also worth mentioning that this is a huge policy priority for Iran as well, uh, since more moderate voices in Iran are really working hard to demonstrate that they can continue to make the terms of the deal work and that they can abide by, you know, the, the original terms of the JCPOA of the Iran deal without risking a major, you know, a major, a majorly crippling the Iranian economy. Uh, it's already been tightened after the American sanctions were reimposed, but, you know, Iran, at least uh, more conservative voices in Iran, are you know kind of floating the idea of breaking with the deal altogether and restarting Iran's nuclear program. They haven't done that yet, you know, but you know without a major victory on the economic front, you know, yeah. there's not really any stopping that argument. You know, it doesn't necessarily make sense to continue abiding by the deal if Iran is not getting anything out of it. Yeah, this is a increasingly tempting option to many Iranians and this idea of a self-sufficient economy is still very strong in in Iran. And uh most polls that come out show that the more this deal between Iran and major powers becomes dysfunctional, the more people are inclined to to support Iran going for a nuclear weapon even. So this is a, a poll that is conducted uh, out of the University of Maryland and they had they interview Iranians every year and um, all these polls point towards um, Iranians becoming more and more fed up with the deal and basically giving up on the international community likely leading to a more confrontational, to politicians with a more confrontational stance towards the West uh, gaining popularity. Great. That's great. Thanks for that update for Jeff. We'll transition over now to, we've got Hamid here to talk about the uh, emir of uh, Qatar's recent visit to Lebanon, to an economic conference there. There's been kind of some reporting that discusses this as Qatar's uh, bid to re-enter Lebanese politics, uh, you know, kind of become a force to be reckoned with in Lebanese politics. Uh, could you kind of give us a, a little bit of background, what's happened most recently, and, you know, kind of uh, how much truth do you think there is to these reports that Qatar is trying to, you know, take a more active role in, you know, Lebanon's political scene? In January 19th and January 20th, the fourth Arab Economic and Social Development Summit took place in Lebanon, and I think it's worth noting. So there are couple of leaders who attended the, the summit. Uh, but not many, right? No. I mean, my understanding was that this summit was very poorly attended and that far fewer leaders from regional, from countries in the Middle East uh, attended the summit than was expected. And that was fairly embarrassing for, uh, especially for President Michel Aoun. Absolutely. Uh, instead of attending themselves, they sent either their uh, finance ministers, foreign ministers. However, uh, the Qatari Amir paid a visit to Lebanon it was quite unexpected. To me, it wasn't, especially because given the situation of Qatar right now, uh, it's in a position where it needs. It's in a position where it needs to be politically uh, relevant, given uh, the blo- the blockade imposed uh, on Qatar by Saudi Arabia and Arab Emirates. So that's perhaps what one of the reasons why Qatar would be interested in entering Lebanese, uh, be involved in Lebanese uh, politics. So would you say this is a way for Qatar to kind of jumpstart its foreign policy in the Middle East, uh, you know, and kind of reassert itself as a power that's, you know, kind of capable on, of taking initiative uh, despite, you know, this blockade? So Qatar sees an opportunity where it can uh, up its PR game across the region and, and basically uh, capitalize on sentiments like the unity of the Arab world uh, being basically... Uh, giving aid to to other uh, Arab countries and and so on. And the Voice of Lebanon actually reported that 
the Qatari Emir deposited $1 billion into the Lebanese Central Bank. However, the the Ministry of, of Economy, Ra'ad Khouri, uh, did not confirm. And also, according to other reports, he also agreed to pay for uh, the summit, but these reports also have not been confirmed. Uh, the finance minister, uh, however, the Lebanese finance minister, however, said that in case that's true, we encourage other uh, countries to follow suit. And also another issue that was brought up during the, the summit was uh, the return of Syrian uh, refugees, where um, a lot of NGOs and also non-profit organizations like the Qatar Foundation is doing a lot to help Lebanon uh, carry the burden of the 1.3 million uh, refugees uh, in the country through giving uh, aid to uh, UNHCR or local uh, NGOs within the country. Uh, and I think it's also, you know, kind of worth noting that this that this entry of Qatar into Lebanese politics that, uh, in this manner is. Do, would you say, Hamad, that this uh, that part of what Qatar gets out of you know its attendance conference and you know the pledging such substantial funds to Lebanon is kind of a way to show up, particularly Saudi Arabia, which is a country that has long funneled money into uh, Lebanese politics, particularly through uh, the Future Movement Party and Saad Hariri. You know who you know the Hariri family has you know kind of had this long-standing relationship with Saudi Arabia are very very long-standing, and Saudi Arabia feels that it needs to be involved in Lebanon because of how influential Iran is in Lebanese politics through Hezbollah through its support for Hezbollah. You know, so would you say that you know Qatar's uh, you know attendance uh, and the Emir's attendance uh, at this conference uh, you know kind of is an opportunity for Qatar to be th- to be there for Lebanon when Saudi Arabia maybe is not. So much? Um, in a way, yes. But also, I wouldn't say that uh, the Emir's presence in Lebanon is uh, to support in, like, explicitly the, the, the Sunni Future Movement uh, Party. I would say that it's supporting like, Lebanon, but also through um, helping the, the Christian party that, is, uh, that has aligned with, with Hezbollah and, and uh, Amal Party. However, I would say that still Lebanon did not form a... Uh, uh, a government, uh, and that's that's going to be challenging. Aimed all the different challenges that Lebanon is facing right now with restructuring restructuring its uh, debt. And uh, speaking of restructuring of Lebanon's restructuring its debt, uh, Qatar right after the the summit announced that it would buy five hundred million dollars in bond to reassure uh, lenders uh, after the government announced that it's going to restructure its uh, its debt. Right. And this is, I mean, this is absolutely huge news for Lebanon, especially since, you know, it seems like every couple of months, uh, Hariri and, you know, other high-ranking Lebanese officials are, you know, heading out on another, you know, round of diplomatic fundraising to France, to Italy, you know, to different, you know, partners of Lebanon, uh, you know, trying to raise funds to keep the Lebanese economy going. And uh, this is something that's been a real political sticking point in efforts to try and form a cabinet. So moving right along, we're just going to, we just have a quick update as well on uh, political developments in Tunis, uh, in Tunisia. Uh, on uh, January 27th, we got a new political party uh, in Tunisia. The uh, Tahia Tunis, Long Live Tunisia party, was founded by uh, MPs who were breaking away from Nidet Tunis, which has kind of been one of the premier political parties of Tunis and has kind of been this, uh, you know, upstanding example of political compromise you know, that has allowed secularists and Islamists, uh, you know, to come together largely united by economic policy priorities in order to, you know, kind of work together for 
this coalition has started to suffer over the last couple of years, particularly as Tunisia's, as Tunisia's economy has struggled. And especially this year, there have been huge strikes. Over 600,000 workers have been striking for over a month now across Tunisia, led by the labor union, UGTT. And, you know, this strike is one, you know, that really kind of exemplifies the political issues that Tunisia is dealing with right now. Most of these workers are demanding higher wages and, you know, wages, uh, wage, wage stagnation has really been a significant complaint against current government in Tunisia for some time at this point. However, the austerity measures necessary to comply with the IMF loan has made it difficult for Tunisia to pass economic reform that both satisfies its citizens' demands for, you know, particularly for higher wages and for cheaper prices on commodities, especially gasoline and food. This economic division has kind of fueled division within Nida Tunis, particularly between Bejikaya de Sipsi, who's, uh, you know, currently the leader of the party, and uh, Yusuf Shahed, uh, who's the current prime minister. Uh, these two, you know, have kind of were the quintessential political alliance uh, in Tunisia when the party was founded, uh, began to drift severely, particularly Bejikai the Sipsi's son uh, made a bid to, you know, be the face of Nidet Tunis, of the party, and this led to a huge defection of, you know, of dozens of MPs and has really split the party down the middle in the last few months. The founding of Tahiyat Tunis, uh, this new party, is kind of the uh, the long-awaited outcome of this division between Shahed and Sipsi. And uh, most of the Tahiyat Tunis MPs so far are stressing the economic portions of their agenda and are really trying to hammer home their economic message, promising that they're going to make uh, the lives of average Tunisians better, that they're going to address wages, that they're going to address Tunisians' complaints with the prices of gas and with food. However, it kind of remains unclear whether they're going to be able to deliver on these promises. I mean, it's, you know, they're the, the, the policies that they're putting forward are ones that are pretty easy to get behind, uh, and they're very easy things to like, and they're policies that Tunisians have been calling for for years. However, it's a little bit unclear how they're going to pay for these policies uh, and you know how likely it is that they'll be able to make them a reality. Thanks very much for tuning in. This has been the Middle East Politics and Policy Podcast, and we will be back in your feed soon.